Hello and welcome to Mega City Book Club, the podcast all about the galaxy's greatest comics. I'm Evan Clark. I'm in London again in another secret location uh, with Matthew Ellis. Welcome back to the book club, Matthew. Thanks for having me, Eamon. It's good to be back. Uh, so, episode 31, where you were introducing me to the first volume of Nikolai Dante, you were too cool to kill then. You're looking very cool and summery today as well. Thank you. <laughs> it's very kind. And we're in London because we've got to go, or we're planning to go, to um, Gosh Comics for a super signing with Mick McMahon, Brian Bolland and John Wagner. And Mate, got- it's, a lo- well, it's a great week to be a comic fan, isn't it? We've had Jerry Finley Day, now we've got those three. It's yes, just- and well, as we were just saying, the Sandman TV series just dropped last night on uh, Netflix as well. So yeah, it's a great time for comic fans. Um, we are going to have to go and stand in the sun for a while, I think, and... Uh, Mind you, that'll probably give us a feeling of what it's going to be like to be in, or what it would have been like to be in the hot box, which uh, <laughs> this comic we're about to talk about. Um, so, ages ago, we did have the idea of doing some Judge Anderson yep. and some Arthur Anson, and then you you changed it up on me by making an interesting and, shall I say, slightly provocative suggestion for a comic. Tell us about the rather obscure comic you've chosen to talk about. Okay, so my I've gone backwards in my comic reading. Right. Uh, I've gone, I've, I've done 2008. Uh, I love it. Uh, action, we, uh, I've, I think I know pretty well, but I didn't know much about Battle at all. And he did a great episode with Garth Ennis. And I know we say everything goes back to 2008, but I think the, the feeling now is everything goes back to war comics, which means it goes back to battle. So I've picked up a good run of, of Battle Picture Weekly, as it was called. So this is back in 75, so two years before 2000 AD. And the story that jumped out at me for, for good and bad reasons is the final story uh, that they launched with, because it's an anthology. So the final story was called The Terror Behind the Bamboo Curtain. So it's a prisoner of war story. And as you say, this is Battle Picture Weekly from 1975, the first 12 issues of Battle. Yep. Uh, three pages at the back of each issue, March to May of 1975. Now, creators, it's slightly difficult. Well, I think we're, we're sure that the artist is Giancarlo Alessandrini from Studio Giolitti. Yep. Uh, but writers, we've got names including Charles Herring, Pat Mills, John Wagner, possibly even a bit of Tom Tully. And we were just talking about this before we record. It, it's still unclear as to who kicked this one off and then who took up the writing of it, it seems. I think this story was problematic. I think there's a clue that it was at the back of the first issue, may yes. not have given it the, the prominence that, that, that they thought it is, you know, deserved. So, and, and I know from, what, from reading about it, it was rewritten a lot. So I, I agree with you. I think this has been through a lot of different hands, like one of those Hollywood blockbusters that finally reaches the, the screen with 14 different names. John, John and Pat can definitely remember the story, mm. but I, I, I think it has gone through their hands many times. I think there's also a clue, not, not just that it was the end of the issue, but it only lasted three months, which I think is about as short as a story could run for in those days. So this was a, a hatch-match dispatch, but in terms of a story, this was, um, this was quickly, you know, after 12 weeks, probably on week 10 told, I think, to round this one up and it wasn't going to be continued. That's, that's the conclusion I come to, but I still think there's a lot to enjoy in it. Okay. Um, I was, we will say that as far as we know, it's only ever been reprinted once, in the Tornado Annual from 1980, where they managed to cut it down 
from 36 pages to 32 pages. So there was some editing, I think. I couldn't spot what they'd taken out. Okay. I'm not sure if that's the mark of a great editing or a story with perhaps a little bit too much flab. But yeah, it's, it's nicely in there. I've got to be honest, because that would fit in with the four or five year rule that they couldn't reprint stuff right um, within that period. But it's got nothing to do with Tornado. So so who knows what... what but they've done a good job of making it look like one story. Do you see right. what I mean? The, um, even the cliffhanger seems to blur together a little bit better. So I, I would recommend, if you want to track it down, the Tornado annual 1980s, the one to go for. Which you can get on eBay for, you know, a five to ten or something like that, can't you? They're Certainly, not, yeah. yeah. So you mentioned it's a Prisoner of War comic. The terror behind the bamboo curtain. Give us an outline of the plot. What are we talking about? Okay, well, these... The comics of 1975 come with an exposition box uh, as the setup, so they love this. So it is 1942, and a group of new prisoners have arrived at a Japanese prisoner of war camp in Burma. So it's a, uh, it's it looks like someone's watched the the, Brivo, the bridge over the River Kwai and gone. That seems like a pretty good start for the story, um, and set it pretty much in the in the same way. So. The prisoners are forced to build a bridge across the, it says here, the Benwadi River, not the River Kwai, but I think that yeah. was fictional anyway. Um, but, but yeah, it's set in the same time, and uh, we've, got, we've got all the tropes you'd expect, but, but exaggerated for comic form. So we've got um, Big Boy Blake, he's right. called, uh, so he's, he's our hero. He's been thrust into the camp. Um, I think he's meant to be obviously a British hero, but he looks kind of like more like the uh, the stouter American from the uh, River Kwai film. Right. And he's immediately at odds with, with Colonel Sado, or Sado, I think, because I think it's a play on, on, on sadism, who's the sadistic uh, Asian overlord who makes his life hell. And I guess it's... What I really like about this, or what, what stood out for me, is, is high concept. So we've got a, a, a prisoner of war camp but it's only got uh, boundaries, it's only got walls on three sides. So you'd think you could escape on the fourth side, mm. but no, that's what leads to the, the bamboo curtain. So clearly there's something in these bamboo trees that you'd be too frightened to go into. And that, that's the, essentially the, 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 the secret that, that needs on. What is, what is behind the uh, bamboo curtain and why do men go in there and seemingly die, but then seemingly also reappear? Right. And you mentioned the bridge on the River Kwai, because um, we know that Pat and John in the 70s loved taking a crib, as they called it, from a film or a TV property that they could turn into a, a boys' action comic. Um, I also noticed that there was a certain... In, in Fleming's novel, You Only Live Twice, there's this sort of torture garden, death garden. Um, and there's also... The film Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence doesn't come out to 1983, but it was based on a novel from 1963 called The Seed and the Sower, which had that same sort of battle between a Japanese prison commandant and a British officer, you know, which, as you say, is the heart of this. Um, you mentioned that there's a mystery, and the mystery is what is the terror, or the first mystery. Yeah. <laughs> the, the first mystery is what is the terror behind the, the bamboo curtain? And we don't really know how it happens in the writing, but they decide to solve that mystery pretty early on in the strip, don't they? Yes, but I, I thought so. So Pat Mills has said that, that girls' comics used to have a long-running mystery. So you'd have an, an orphan abandoned at a monastery, but the nuns are doing something behind the scenes. Perhaps their source of income is unclear, or they see jewels, or they see a, a, some sort of bank robbery car. 
In this one, though, the, 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 what's behind the bamboo curtain is essentially death traps, for want right. of a better word, that, that spring up and, and test you. And, you know, there's lots of trip wires and, and feet being caught on things. But they're not killing people. That's the first thing. They're testing them. Mm. And the, the question then is, why are they testing them? So he's, uh, Blake sees the, these comrades that he thinks have gone in there and died... But they, they've not. They, they are still alive in there, but they're wearing Japanese uniforms, and that's the next level of the mystery. Yes. So they reveal... Uh, it seemed to me they revealed the terror behind the bamboo curtain <laughs> fairly early on. Yes. And you and I have both been reading up about this because we've read interviews with Pat, who's talked about this. And you're quite right, because Pat has said that he and John took a lot of what they'd got from the girls, doing girls' yeah. comics. And that he saw, or he now sees, the sort of Japanese prisoner of war camp, a bit like um, a popular trope in girls' comics at the time, the, the sort of the slave school or the prison school, and there's an evil headmistress and there's some sort of mystery. Now, this is the bit that puzzled me slightly, because Pat says that the boys' readers didn't Did, want the no, mystery. They just they wanted just want, the action. They want fights and punches, but the girls loved a slow-burning mystery. Right. But in terms of how quickly they they sort of reveal in this, like two or three issues in, I don't think they'd have a time for le- for the readers to feed back on that. No, it shows a lack of confidence on the on the piece. I mean, I've read before with um, Pat and John. So on the I know for the Dan Dare for the New Eagle, they actually alternated weekly st- right. weekly stories. So he, one would write it one week or, and leave them a. Um, a cliffhanger oh, right. and the next one would try and resolve it and then get to another cliffhanger I think the the way it reads there may have been a bit of baton passing because this was the sixth or seventh strip in the anthology of them just going let's just keep trying to make this work and see see what we get out of it but there is fun to be had in that do you see what I mean there is yeah. fun it's almost like they the, the plot gets deeper and deeper <laughs> you know a box within a box within a box but then you end up with the problem of trying, like J.J. Abrams in Lost, to try and, well, how do you do a satisfying ending when you've had mystery within a mystery? Yeah. Um, but I do enjoy it. I do enjoy it. Um, I was reminded of that title from Scream comic, Monster, where Alan Moore wrote the first episode and left, like, the mystery of who Uncle Terry was or whatever it was at the end of the first episode. And then I think John and Alan Grant took it over, I think. Yes, no, yeah. no, definitely. Yeah. So, and, and, and then had to, like... To make a story out of this sort of hanging thread that Alan Moore had left them. I think John and Alan, though, both do story arcs. So there's always things changing. Whereas I think someone like Tom Tully just could keep a story going for yes. ad infinitum. So yeah. I think what's fair with this one is to say, even though each week it sort of goes deeper into the mystery, they do wrap it up before it becomes... A just ge- a generic, you know, uh, cliffhanger each week. So that it's always I, f- I found it. It's clearly very early John Wagner and Pat work. Yeah, but you can still tell, even though there's some really problematic bits. I'm sure we'll come on to with it, with the characterisation. I still find it weirdly quite satisfying. So as a, a person who hasn't really read a lot of war comics, it was the story that jumped out at me. So either it was one of the better ones or, or my my affinities are more like female readers that would prefer a, a mystery than than just fighting. Uh, well, I'll perhaps mention in the first issue of Battle Picture Weekly, you also had D-Day Dawson, yep. the Rat Pack, Lofty's One Man Luftwaffe, and the Bootneck Boy, all titles that have gone on to sort of, you know, fairly well acclaimed. Claimed, yeah. Um, obviously, the Rat Pack, I think, has been reprinted. reprinted yeah. um, and then at the back of it, they've got the terror behind the bamboo curtain. 
it's it's perhaps not one of the best remembered stories from that initial run, is it? No, and uh, there are some very strange things about it. So, if you remember um, the Bridge Over the River Choir, which yes. which I think everyone would agree is an influence, it's a David Lean film, right? So the first thing they do is show this massive camp, and then they show the massive bridge that needs building. It it, it, it needs a double page spread that it never gets. This this camp actually looks like there's only four people in it. Yes, and the actual um, the, the the bridge they're building only appears once. That, that looks like they're doing it with um, kind of a door frame. You know what I mean? It looks it looks kind of about ten foot tall. Whereas if you'd seen the River Kwai, you would have gone, that, "That that seems amazing." I mean, the shots in that of all the heavy lifting are incredible. So there's no, you're never quite convinced what what quite's going on here. But um, it's still a lot of fun. Right. There, there's so I got told when you go before 2000 AD, be prepared for some uh, simplifications of storytelling. So, so one thing that I've noticed here is they'll have an exposition box. They'll have explaining, this is where we are, this is what the character is. Then you've got the the character talking, but you've also got a, a, a thought bubble. So you can sometimes have the same piece of information told, thought about, and spoken by the narrator, but sometimes never actually shown. So, um, you know, there's bits where, the, where, where Blake decides no one believes him. So he says it, thinks it, and then the caption box says, Blake would now work on his own. And right. he goes, I've got it, I've got it three times. I've got it three times there. It's, um, you know, it's good fun that way, but we, we should come on to the, the problem, I think, with the, uh, with, with the characterization, I suppose. Okay, well, it, I mean, let's talk about it then, because obviously this is a sort of battle of wills between the blonde-haired, square-jawed British... Big, big boy Blake, yes. <laughs> big Jim Blake... Uh, or big boy, as the, the, the colonel refers to him, and then Colonel Sada, the the, uh, the camp commandant, who's got this plan that we discover in these twelve issues, uh, what he's doing with uh, the British troops behind the bamboo curtain. Yeah. So, obviously, um, Colonel Sado is somewhat, that shall we say, how do we put this? He there's a there's a great deal of racial stereotyping. Yeah, I mean he here, isn't he's he's as offensive as, as as it could be. He he's every aspect of the Asian caricature. That, yes. That whilst you know um, you can sort of try and say well these tropes existed, you, you wouldn't accept anything like this now. And I I honestly don't. I think even in in 1975, if if this had got into any other hands. They would have gone. Sorry, this is this is this is just too much. I mean, his he has all the caricatures of of, of, of of racism. You know, all the things you expect. Also, his language is quite strange. Really, he seems at every attempt to do alliteration, mm. call them British dogs, but also do kind of these weird kind of one-liners, um, as if he understands British culture, but but, but gently mocks them with it. But the the funny thing is the. It's interesting, again, to compare it to the, to the River Choir, because in, in that film, you've got Colonel Sato, so that's where Sato yeah. comes from, and you've got Alec Guinness. So Alec Guinness is actually, his character is an officer who doesn't want, he, he's got very clean lines that mm. he believes shouldn't be crossed, even under these circumstances. And Colonel Sato, whilst, again, he's a stereotype, there is honour in completing the bridge on time, and that's that. If he doesn't, there'll be personal dishonour for him. In this, you've got the 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 Blake character is more like the um, is it Doug McClure? Do you remember from yeah, the films? Yeah, yeah. It's more like the he's 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 testosterone up to the max, so he's yes. not the Alec Guinness character. And Sado compared to Sato 
it's just never apparent that there's a personal consequence to him of this bridge never getting built. But that's because we barely see the bridge. So in the end, you're right. It just it seems to be just personal animosity of two people shouting at each other at, at every attempt. Um, so I, I think that there's fun to be had as, as long as you can kind of realise that this has been testosterone up to, to a ridiculous level. But after that, I would say, if it is uh, John and Pat, they are still capable of telling you a really clear story. Like, I think John's amazing at, at war things. So mm. you know every time where everyone is and, and what they're doing. You know, he's good at locating characters in there. So when Blake goes into the, the bamboo curtain, it's actually quite an exciting sequence. So whilst we said it demystifies it, you go, wow, this is... I, th- I didn't think we'd come to this for weeks, you know. How is he going to reappear? And, and, you know, and, you know, what's going to be the consequences to them? Um. So Colonel Sato has got the terrible buck teeth, yeah. the little round glasses, yeah. uh, a horrible moustache and strange caricatured face. He shouts and raves in, in terrible broken English. I've got in front of me, I can see you've got your very first issue of Batman. Yes. I've got issue 12, which has got the cover when they actually made the cover and it says, Die English Pig. Die English Pig, yeah. Uh, um, is this the end for Big Jim Blake? Um, it, you know, it is... It is terrible racial stereotyping, unfortunately, from the mid seventies. And the the one I was comparing it to in our notes was, of course, Darkies Mob. Yeah, which I did on the book club with Paul Trimble. It's a tricky book to talk about, Darkies Mob. Paul, but Paul, sorry, I think Paul did a great job. And I listened to that episode and then realised mine was going to come across as quite a slight book. I mean, the the Captain J- John Darkey. Uh, there's, I think he's in the first issue. They say. You know, he's a crazy man, but maybe crazy is what we need to, yeah. to get us out of this situation. Uh, but here doesn't merit it in the same. You know, here there's not well, there's not the depth of character. But you, you, I think you can see um, Bamboo Curtain as, as a precursor to, to, to Darkie's Mob. Darkie's Mob has just done so much more successfully yes. in terms of actually the showing a number of people as well and a progression over time yeah um, this is like a little tryout for it i think yeah it's, it's also funnily one of three stories in this first issue set around prison camps oh right so the pr- prison camp trope is clearly very very popular uh, and you know i mean i think i've learned it with war comics you can see why they appealed though because in a story you're always looking for the tension and only in war comics can you have life and death every week do you yeah. know what i mean in in other comics when I was growing up reading football stuff you, there was obviously the consequence of being relegated at the end of the season but there was never life or death so I'm beginning to learn why people love battle comics so much Bridge on the River Quire was his huge influence that's a prison camp movie I'm, I'm, I don't know the dates I should have checked but Cold It's the TV series was sort of like mid 70s as well I wonder if that is also part of it um, that our fascination with prisoners of war at the time um, anyway, okay, so uh, yes, Joe Darkey in Darkey's Mob is a very problematic character because he is a racist character, although the comic itself, hopefully, is not racist. Colonel Sado in Bamboo Curtain is definitely a racial uh, sort of stereotype in his depiction, and we should mention the artwork because... The other Japanese guards don't get off too badly, but Colonel Sado, whenever he's on panel, he's, yeah, he's he, just... He looks like a, a kind of a caricature artist has, has drawn him separately to the rest of yeah. the rest of the people. There is some nice artwork, though. I actually thought the the facial work that he does, particularly on Blake, when 
when he has to look solemn and stuff, there's a few bits that look a kind of a bit like Alex Toth. They actually look nicer done, but a bit like we can't tell with the script if it's been handed from person to person. I can't tell either if some pages of the script have been done by a, a, a better handler, let's say. There are panels which are really quite good, and then there are other panels which look like they've just been either bodged by someone or tossed off very quickly. Um, this, this is great. So we're referring to the pages in the annual, but 28 and 29 actually have the same face. You know, right. literally, yeah. you, clearly these weren't meant to be matching opposite pages because you would have gone, ah, you, you, you really just, have, you, you just, just copied that, that one. Yeah. But, but clearly, I suppose, like we're saying, it's the final story in the, um, in the comic. Perhaps it was a bit of a rush job, to be honest, uh, how, how they put this together. The, the river choir, so again, he, you know, Big Jim gets put into the uh, into the sweat box, doesn't he? It's almost ex- <laughs> the same the same part of the film, the, the same part of the story here. He, he ends up in it, so um, yeah, it, it does wear its 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 influences very much on its sleeve. Here. He gets put in the tin shack, the tin shack, yes, to sweat. And of course, in the film Bridge on the River Kwai, Alec Guinness um, is considerably physically affected by that. And he does that famous walk when he come, he's released. And, you know, he, can, he said he based it on... I think he based it on a child... Was it his son's walk? He had, anyway, he based it on a, a disabled family member, you know, their walk. Whereas Big Jim Blake pretty much shrugs off the hot box. He? He does, yeah, there's no purpose to... So it, it, well, I take it from the River Quiet, that, that's a mental battle. Like yeah. he's, He survives the physical battle, but the mental thing is he comes out of it, he empowers... Sorry, his officers are empowered by seeing him do that, and they, they, they keep to the line. Mm. With, with Big Jim here, all, all that happens is he, he, um, he comes out... He, he goes back into the bamboo curtain, at one point even killing another British soldier who's been dressed up, but somehow the rest of the team don't believe that's an issue. Yeah. At which point he goes, I've got to solve the bamboo curtain on my own. So he's not going to get any... Which, which is one of the more illogical things to have happened in it. Yeah. Okay. Um, again, I wondered about this because I wondered about our exposure to uh, Japanese people in the mid-70s and how probably apart from depictions on film and television we didn't you know we just weren't used to seeing them and therefore this sort of stereotyping that we see in comic books could probably be excused to a certain extent you know I remember all I can remember is Bridge on the River Kwai and as I said to you the guy (laughs) the scientist who drops the flask at the start of Terry Nation's Survivor series where you know, 99% of the world is wiped out by a viral plague, you know. I I just think as we probably, as time went on, we hopefully became more tolerant and accepting and and, uh, of, you know, we just basically, we met Japanese people, I think is the answer, isn't it? Yeah. The other other problem though is the heart, well, as I said, there's something hugely enjoyable about the life and death threat in war comics. The problem you've got is they're dealing with real battles I mean, yeah. predominantly these are all second world war which means the villains or the, the enemy have to be real as well so one whilst I said I enjoyed this story it, it is constrained or becomes uh, problematic because it's based on real events and actually Paul Trimble talked about the, the, the Burma treatment much, you know, much more knowledge than I could but it's one thing you realise two years later when they went from battle to 2008 if you go into sci-fi then you can do anything because he doesn't have to be Japanese. He could be an alien. And it's, mm. 
you realise perhaps why Pat and John just felt, you know what, I don't want to keep doing realistic stories. I mean, ironically, Charlie's War is one of the best ones ever. Yeah. But but but, but going to sci-fi stops the the contentiousness. Do you right. know what I mean? It stops. And it's funny, you know, the prison the prison that's got a uh, a side to it that's open doesn't half sound like Devil's Island from from the first Judge Dredd story. You yeah. know, you sort of go this prison you can walk out of, but something's impeding you. So and then. My favourite, sorry, some of my favourite stories, um, Harry Twenty. You know, right? You sort of go, well, that way you can have a sadistic prison guard and an inescapable prison because it's in space, and you don't have to be specific about his his nationality. Whereas, I guess here, you know, in, in, in they all seem sorry. That was the thing that surprised me when it's a war comic. They all broadly are Second World War stories. Mm. So they're not stories about different wars. In there's no there's no attempts, which which massively limits you've got. Germans, you can you can bark at. You've got Russians, even the Italians come in for some of it, um, but but it's very limited in terms of the enemy has to be a real person, and I think that's what they're limited by, to be honest. Yeah. Okay. It's, I mean, it's an interesting one. It's uh, um, it's it's probably it's not one of the standouts from the history of battle, is it? You know, because as you say, we're going to go on to Darkies Mob, Johnny Red. HMS Nightshade, all these titles. Which are, yeah, some of those are. I mean, I think HMS Nightshade's a, a kind of another hidden classic. The conclusion I've come to, though, is as you go back reading, the reason I this jumped out at me because it's it's early Pat and John, it's problematic, but it is actually interesting and it goes past at a rollicking speed. Right. And I actually, I'd rather read early more amateur, less sophisticated John and Pat than I would broadly read a lot of modern stuff. You know, there's, that's why there is enjoyment to going back. Um, and of course, it's only 36 pages, which is... It's one of the quickest we've, yeah. we've had. <laughs> it's, it? a, it's an American comic and a half, really. Yeah. You know? So um, it's, it's a zipping read. You can have fun. You can have a beer and, and discuss it. And um, I wish all stories moved that fast, really. And for whatever reason, uh, after 12 episodes, <laughs> they decided... You know, possibly because, as you say, this was a bit of a bodge job. There was several people steering this ship uh, or rewriting stuff. They decide to end it anyway after twelve. They, they do, and I think I, I've said to you, I'm a fan of Darren Brown. This has yeah. got a Darren Brown level um, plot in it. So the plot is: the strongest men go out into the bamboo. Spoilers now. So you, yeah. you can't spoil thirty-three pages. <laughs> but the strongest men go out so that they will survive the hypnotism process that will then make them anti-British and they can fight for Colonel Sado as his personal army. That is a Darren Brown... Yes. You know, it's so bizarre. Yes. That a, so he doesn't test who would be uh, open to hypnotism. No, no, that'd be too easy. He tests their strength first. I think there is some black humour in making them anti-British. Do you see what I mean? So they do, yeah. He doesn't turn them into mindless zombies like the Incredible Hulk in a rage. They actually do shout, you know, down with British. So, the, again, with, with, with John or Pat, I think they're incapable of, even in the thinnest of stories, having some feeling that perhaps patriotism can be misplaced, even if it's done through hypnotism in this way. I think there is a little bit of... Just because you're British, don't be proud of everything that Britain stood for. That's what I also think is a, perhaps a takeaway from this, this fun story. Yeah. So Sado's plan is to use his death traps to <laughs> weed out the strongest troops who he will then hypnotise, dress up in Japanese forms... <laughs> to be his personal... To be his crack personal... While stroking his white cat. I mean, it truly is a Bond villain-level plot with Darren Brown in control. And... 
again, we're sort of spoiling this comic, but can we say that at the end of 12 episodes, just say quicksand? Quicksand, quicksand. <laughs> make this disappear. So that's probably what IPC said. Make this story disappear. And Pat and John thought, what makes anything disappear quicker than quicksand? Let's just watch this slide under. Because the quicksand could have happened at any time, couldn't it? Yeah. It's, uh, I enjoyed it. I, I, I've wanted to find a way into war comics. And this, to me, is, is just pure fun. Is there, so where are you at your battle read then? Are you sort of working the way all the way through them? I, I, I bought a big set and I started reading from the beginning and there is some parallels to 2000 E whereas the, the, sorry, the first few years of 2000 E are quite uneven whereas I think there's the 200th issue and Garth mentioned this where Charlie's War and HMS Nightshade started and you go this is now on fire so the problem I've got is I'm sort of reading from two parts forward right um, but, but one thing it has um, and made me feel is I do prefer reading the original comics. We're lucky ba- battles are really cheap, um, so you can pick them up plentifully. And it is great to actually read them in the context of an anthology. I personally think that they don't stand up so, stand up so well when they're put together as, as graphic novels. They, they aren't really graphic novels. Even the best of them, um, Darkies Mob, is better read as part of an anthology you know because right. that way it really you read you know seven other stories and that comes back round again you go oh this one's a, this one's a good one this is head and shoulders above the others uh, I do think it's interesting that you've what you've said which is that uh, the war comics um, which they start with of course the war comics they have all this violence against people who at that time in the world were becoming our allies and our friends so we can't have that no then we get action where we've got all this violence and threats against people on our own streets, our own police officers. Well, we can't have that. No, that's gone too far. That's gone too far. So then eventually, of course, 2000 AD runs after Battle and Action Warped and um, we'll do the violence against aliens and robots and that'll be okay. Yeah, and I mentioned this to Jerry Finley Day on, on this week and he said, he said 2000 AD was meant to have a war story in it from the start. And I said, but but it did. It had invasion. He goes, no, no, it was meant to have a sci-fi war story. So the, the, the conversations about it, it being missing a story, a, a future war story, clearly went on for 220 issues. Until, until Rogue, Rogue came. Yeah. And I would say that the best run of 2000 is from Rogue Trooper's first appearance up to the end of um, Bad Company 2. And it's quite funny. I think everything does come back to, to war comics. Those rogue and bad company consistently, apart from Dread and Strontium, they get mentioned the most fondness of, I loved, you know, I loved reading that. I'd love to read those again. It's mm. often what you get. And you do realise that there's something inherently great about battle. And I think the thing with bad company and rogue is because the war's non-specific, you can do more. Like people said, well, bad company is more sim- uh, similar to Vietnam. And you go... In some ways, yes. In some ways, it's his own lurid beast of its, you know, of its own making. But um, I have I have gone through this with a new fondness for war comics that I didn't have before. Right. Um, and I can see why they they ran so so sorry, why they were so popular for such a long period of time. But I do like them with a sci-fi edge. You know, I, Battle did start. I think the there's an invasion one by John Wagner that is set in the future. With an alien invasion. That's, well, it's, is it called an invasion? That's it. Yeah, yeah. And that to me sits better because then you don't know what's going to happen. Whereas, right. I mean, this one in here, uh, I think the character's off to assassinate Hitler, and you go, "Well, I'm not sure if he's going to be that successful just based on my uh, on, on my uh, GCSE knowledge of history." So yeah. that, that sounds like a non-starter to me. But, yeah, uh, the day of the jackal. That's that's correct. We know. He does, <laughs> yeah. 
It's a more like, how doesn't he do it? Yes. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, you mentioned Jerry Finley Day. You met him twice this yes. week. Yeah, he's great a lovely guy. Great to see guy. him out and about signing, which is great. The best of Jerry, fin- Jerry Finley Day, which I think has got Harry 20. Yep, there, the full, yeah, the full thing, yeah. The whole Harry 20, um, which is still going to come up on the podcast at some point. Um, Battle Picture Weekly, as I say, if you want to collect this story, you either have to get the first 12 issues or you have to find that Tornado album, um, annual from 1980. You bind some comics, don't you? Yeah. Um, I've, I've not done Battle yet. No, I've I've done the first 700 2000 AD because they're they're the loves of love of my life. Right. And I, my aim was to get the first book signed by everyone. Sorry, my aim was to get every book signed by everyone's first appearance. Right. The Fatal Flaw was obviously prog one to twenty six. Have so many. Yeah. But that fills a page, and right. the other books perhaps just have a couple in and stuff. So I've I've been pursuing that. So if you see me at conventions with a heavy bag, it'll be those bound volumes in them. Battle, I like. I'm not. I'm not sure if I'm going to get them bound yet because the problem I've got is I think the best stuff's the, the, the Charlie's War, HMS Nightshade, 200 issues in. Yeah. And I'm not sure you should start any collection on issue 200. But right. um, from what I've learned before, Eamon, I, I usually come round to doing these things. <laughs> so uh, uh, because because there's so much fun. I mean, there's only so much um, Wagner and Mill stuff out there. Why why not have it? To, I mean, the, the great thing about it is bo- buying volumes. I can pull them off the shelf. They look lovely. Yeah. You can reach for the issue. The comics aren't worth anything, but then they're only worth what you get out of reading them anyway, I think. Yeah, yeah. And your band volumes do look very lovely. We've seen a few of them at sign-ins, and they're very nice. Um, okay, let's just take you back to Terror Behind the Bamboo Curtain for one more thing, ah. which is to play the Grail page game. Um, and I'm going to post an image um, with, you know, appropriate warnings that, you know, racial stereotyping yeah well. so the final issue they didn't let it slink away this story so whilst it was issue 12 was the was the wrap-up they still gave it a cover which has um the, the colonel brandishing a big samurai sword of course it's a samurai sword over the head of, of blake with with die english pig on it and it it's just so funny it could have been an, an action cover they love this sort of thing as well i know um, it would have jumped out on, on a news news agent stand for all the right reasons and for all the wrong reasons we've had, but that that's that that would be the one to have, I think, just as a talking point. Okay, well, I will post that cover with the appropriate yes. warnings. Um, uh, yeah, and it is. It does get the cover on the twelfth issue. It is basically a recreation <laughs> of a panel. <laughs> it looks like a blow up, doesn't it? Uh, yes, but the panel inside on the last page of the story, um, the panel's pretty bad, actually. Um, whereas obviously you spent more time quite rightly I guess on the cover um, the panel really looks like a bit of a bodge job actually <laughs> they were racing to finish they I mean, were, who, they knows? Were, who yeah. knows how it finished perhaps with multiple endings well interesting because we just talked about House of Demon with yep. Jim Campbell and he's pretty sure that they tagged on some some lettering at the end just to say like I'll oh, just end it I, I agree with this one there was no chance of any of these characters coming back yeah. um, Blake's not interesting enough he, he barely was in there as, as his Doug, Doug McClure caricature of muscle yeah. so um, he, he wasn't going to come back he is a very Doug McClure um, hero from that time when he was making those sort of dinosaur films and going into the earth's crust uh, and all that right. sort of thing yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay so as we say if you want it track down the Tornado album from 1980 which you can find on eBay over here for less than a tenner I think at the moment um and uh, as you say, you're binding projects. Well, so some signing today. We're going to because you only see John and Brian and Mick. Well, yeah, I mean those three together. They're, they're the go- they're the gods of dread. They're the gods of British comics. And 
I think, you know, we've all been through this torrid two years of COVID. It's just great to see these people emerge like like the, uh, the, the geniuses that they are. Yeah, and it's been great because we talked about this uh, we were at Lawless getting things signed here. You were you've been see, you've been stalking Jerry Finley Day this week. Well, I'm, well, it's great he came out. I hope he comes to conventions. Um, I saw someone ha- handing him a Rogue Trooper rifle to yes. sign, which was quite yeah. spectacular. There was a couple of guys hanging back in the queue, so they were going, "No, you go to the front. You go to the front." And I thought, "What have they? What have they got?" What I they thought got? it might be the helmet, but no, they right. they pull out the whole rifle, and uh, there was a big smile on his face. And you, you've got to think. Getting interaction for something that you did, what was it, 1981, 1982. So all these years later, knowing that that meant so much to those people, that's got to be worth coming back out and, and seeing. And I hope, I think he did get a lot out of it. Um, but I'm not hedging my bets that so that means he's he's going to do a full return to conventions. So he seems quite an elusive chap to me. Yes, he does, yes. And of course, we have been talking on Facebook this week about the difficulties of attracting writers to these events because... They don't necessarily have stuff to sell us. No, I think the, the artists obviously can sell their artwork or sell prints. Um, yeah, it's, it's trickier what, what, what writers can do. But that said, they spend so much time on their own. It is a shame we can't find a way to reward them, yeah. uh, to thank them for spending all that time coming up with these ideas. Yeah. Perhaps buying them drink, perhaps formal drink purchasing should be, should be, should be brought in. A <laughs> <Pipe the> signature, <laughs> yeah. Okay, great, Matthew. Thank you very much. Well, I look forward to your interesting uh, next choice. <laughs> <laughs> Only upwards from here, I think. Yeah, okay. Uh, interesting. How do we talk about comics that have um, difficulties about them? But anyway, okay. Um, anything else you want to plug or mention while we're here? Well, having to talk to Jerry, I have looked at Tammy. So oh, I'm right. just going back further now. There's a Tammy reprint of issue one, again, very cheaply available. And he... He, again, like the Bamboo Curtain, uh, enjoyed having stories, girls' stories with secrets in them. And there's one, I think, called War Orphans Slaves. So even when I said that to him, he sort of went, oh, that one was a bit. And I thought, if even the author goes, that, that one was a bit beyond the pale. So I might go back and try and get some Tammies just to read the stuff that he wrote for them. Again, a bit like I've, I've read this one, with a bit of a nod and a wink of realising it might be a bit out of date, but it might still be a, a lot of fun to go through. If you had the girls' comics title bingo, War Orphan Slaves, you just need to add in school, school <laughs> in somewhere, you know, School of the War Orphan tick, Slaves. Tick, tick, yeah, all. That's the sort of thing. Okay. Um, Paul Trimble, we mentioned yes. him a couple of times. He, of course, likes getting copies of Cindy that John Wagner did and taking those to get John signed those. Well, I, I do still take my hat off to his knowledge of comics and uh, the, the, the war period this covered. So I, yeah. I don't have either of those knowledge, but I did enjoy his, his, his talk through. Great stuff. Thank you very much, Matthew. We're going to go off to a sign-in and stand in the sun outside Gosh Comics for a while. Um, and then hopefully have a quiet, cold drink somewhere afterwards. Great. Amen. Okay. It's been fantastic. <laughs> and thank you to everyone for listening to Mega City Book Club. As ever, find all the links at megacitybookclub.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and the 2000 forums to see the cover to issue 12 of Battle Picture Weekly and email me mcbcpodcast at gmail.com. So until next time when we're talking about another great book, it's um, from here in London. It's goodbye from me and... Goodbye from me. Goodbye from me.